Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. I've wanted to start an Easter service like we just started that for so long. I'm sure the verdict's out, but I'm just like, I just, I want to do that. I just feel like we, wanna, we need like a whole season of just campfire style singing. Anybody amen to that? Just, I mean, I love, I mean, I've been a musician as long as I can remember like breathing and playing in bands since my late teens. And I love all this so much, but my gosh, just gathered around with some people like a little out-of-tune guitar, belting out like there's no tomorrow, the goodness of God. For those of y'all that are new to church, new to all of this, that was probably a funny moment to walk into, but welcome. We are working, um, I don't say we're working hard. I think it kind of comes naturally to our community, but just for those that are new, I know we always try to just make sure we're paying attention to all those that are coming through the doors. I recognize that... Um, you obviously felt comfortable enough to get dragged into church today or you felt some weird internal cultural pressure. You must not be from here. But, um, but some internal cultural pressure that felt like I should go to church on Sunday, on Easter Sunday. We, we really are glad you're here and our hope is that this is a safe and a sacred place. That's why we called it sanctuary, for you to be open. One of the things I love about our city, even though it's sort of a fickle version of it sometimes, is that our city is open or at least claims to be. It wants to be open, and we want to be open, open to, uh, to the experience that thousands and thousands, or for millions of people have had for thousands of years, which is this experience with something beyond just their, 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 their few senses, something just beyond what they can see and touch, this experience of love and grounding and engagement and this longing for like a, a bigger and wider life here and this deep sense that they weren't made for the brokenness of this world. Anyone else feel that in their bones? We're going to have a history lesson, which is not the most inspiring way to start an Easter sermon, but like I said, no hype. 11th grade history. Anyone remember studying the Roman Empire? This is the context for the Jesus story. Rome ruled the world from England to India one of the most powerful empires the world has ever bore witness to. Julius Caesar, you'll see a picture of Julius Caesar behind me here. Perhaps one of the most you know, well-known Roman uh, was never actually officially an emperor. Right? He is the uh, inventor of a haircut and the namer of a salad. Um, the reason he was assassinated in March of 44 BC was because his enemies did not want him to become emperor. He was incredibly powerful, and this was the trajectory of how things were going. And as often happened, political violence plunged their world into absolute turmoil and civil war. And the civil war focused initially on the struggle between those that had killed Julius Caesar and those that wanted to avenge his death. So there's those that took him out, or on one side, and those that wanted to avenge his death on the other. Caesar's adopted son, and the heir to the throne was a man named Octavian. Say Octavian. And Octavian eventually becomes Augustus, just so you're not confused, which you probably already are confused. But Octavian, his son, 
also known, known later as Augustus, he teams up with Mark Antony, who was Julius Caesar's best friend. So these two are like, we're pairing up, we're going on a rampage. This alliance, though, was short-lived. So once Caesar's assassins had been defeated, then you had a whole new power vacuum. So who's going to rule? Oh, no, you got it. Oh, no, no, you got it. Oh, no, you got it. No, that wasn't how the conversation went between, between these two. They, they actually then broke into their own sort of civil war, these rivals for ultimate power. Antony traveled around what's now called the Middle East, drumming up massive support, waged a very impressive campaign for like, you should, you should go with me. By the way, campaigning wasn't like pit stops in Iowa at like cow farms with signs. It was slightly more violent than that. Octavian, though less experienced, was not about to give up, though Mark Antony had launched this initial campaign. And so there, there come bits, and long story short, there was this crucial battle at sea on September 2nd of 31 BC. So a few decades before Jesus comes on the scene. They didn't call it BC then. Bible joke. Off the coast of Actium in western Greece, Octavian's navy wins the battle. Big surprise. No one saw it coming. Octavian wins. It was this decisive blow. And then Antony fled to Egypt to go be with his Cleopatra, where they both made some poor decisions and ended their life together. Now, suppose you had been living in Rome, a nice little villa out in the countryside, Italy, during 13 years of civil war. This was an absolutely terrible time. And even though the fighting was taking place a long way off, the city itself was filled with rumors and factions and threats and political jockeying. Everyone was waiting anxiously the news from the front lines. And this war was not televised, obviously. There was not like the newspaper that was rolling through where you were getting updates every day, every two days, or even sometimes every week. You didn't know what was going on, but you knew there was a high-stakes situation that was about to affect your entire way of life. Now, suppose you had been a friend of Caesar's family. If Octavian won, this would be what? If you're following me, would this be good news or bad news? Good news, because Octavian wins the battle. If Antony won, be bad news. You might have to actually leave town in a hurry. And then one day, one glorious day, if you're an Octavian fan, <laughs> you got the snapback, you're ready to go. Good news. This was literally the announcement. In Greek, good news, Octavian Caesar has won a great victory. Quote, he is now master of the whole Roman world. This is the good news about something that had just happened. The backstory is there's this massive civil war that had come to a close, and there was this battle, this news that just happened that is going to have an claimed as Augustus was about to bring peace, justice, and prosperity to the whole world. There was this inscription that was found. For all of you who are familiar a little bit with the Bible, just pay attention to the language of this inscription. Salvation is found in no other save Augustus, and there is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. 
If you're familiar with the Bible, all the lights on your dashboard should just be going off. And if you're not, that's okay. We'll get there. There was another one. Coins. You show the picture of the coins here. We're not there yet. Where's the coins? No coins. There were coins that said Caesar is Lord that were printed. This was a common phrase and a common expression. Caesar is Lord. This is how you would disseminate information. Now Octavian, winning this victory, is on his way back to Rome. But he would first have to consolidate the victory. Especially in Egypt, which was this like vital part of the empire. There would be, um, one scholar says, there was like a military mopping up operation to make sure that the victory was fully implemented. Decisive battle but had to like implement the rest of the victory. For those of you, again, flashbacks to more history. What did D-Day, what did that mark? What war did that mark the end of, D-Day? World War II. Anyone remember, were there, was there any fighting after D-Day? Yeah, a lot. A lot. A lot of death, a lot of turmoil, a lot of anxiety, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, but... Even then, there was a clear sense that that moment marked the end of the war. We just now have to implement the rest of the victory to mop the rest up. This is exactly what was going on with Octavian. It would actually be about two years before Octavian finally returned to the capital, which is then where he proclaimed that he had brought peace to the world. During those two years, the city was freaking ready. Like, ready. They were living, this is the important part you just hold on to. They were living between the news about something that had just happened, and they were living between the expectation of what his rule and reign would actually be like. The already of the battle had been won. We got the news and the not yet living in normal Octavian Empire life. This is what news does. So during that time, people in Rome would know what was coming. Octavian is obviously going to reward his boys. Right? Like, yeah, I've been rolling with Octavian for a long, long time. He's going to reward his friends and his supporters. He would like to, you know, he would likely punish those who had supported Antony especially those who had sided with Julius Caesar's assassins. For the moment, though, the city would be living between the event that had just happened and the event that would soon happen. The good news about the victory and the good news about the future, the good news about what had happened and the good news about the expectation would translate then into good news now. Everything would look different because this thing had happened even though he's not fully back to implement it all. You and your family would have Octavian parties. You would start to plan your whole new life. The world was gonna change for you completely. Your boy is on the throne. Now, imagine you've been on the other side. Suppose you had secretly supported the assassination of Julius Caesar. You either get out of there or you do what Herod the Great did. Now you can show that picture again of Herod. This is Herod. And remember where Herod is in the, in the Jesus story. The Christmas story, right at the beginning. He's the one who hears rumors of Jesus. 
Herod was this powerful warlord in the Roman-occupied Jewish homeland. Remember, Rome had, was conquered, had conquered the world between England and India, and Israel was right there in the middle. And so to, to, to help keep order, Rome would set up sort of puppet kings sitting underneath the empire. And Herod, who was half Jewish, was appointed to be over and help rule, be an extension of Julius Caesar's rule there in Israel. He had been made, quote, king of the Jews. If you're not catching all these references at this point, like stay with me. He had supported Antony. He was on the wrong side. But Herod was a clever little buddy. <laughs> and he had a little plan up his sleeve. So he went straight to Octavian and basically said, look, like pleading, I'm imagining him on his knees. We don't know how this actually went down, but we have recorded uh, these recorded documents of this from some historians. He said, don't think about whose friend I've been. Think about how loyal a friend I've been. Right? Like, that means you're not that loyal, right? And he's gone now. I've been so loyal. I'll be loyal to whoever. That's what I will be for you. Long story short, it basically worked. Not because Octavian was a pushover, but Octavian was a political man. And so he had a sense that like to keep Herod would just be a good move for all sorts of reasons I don't have time to get into. Absolutely brilliant. Here's the point. For Herod, the news of what had happened and what it meant in terms of the new rule and the new reign and the thing that was about to happen created a problem for Herod, right? It wasn't gonna get a pat on the back and like a little like HR you know, exit interview. No, he was probably gonna get killed or like rushed out. How did he fix it? Well, he fixed it by pleading for mercy and then coming in line with the brand new reality. Maybe you could say it like this, and we'll come back to this phrase at the end. Good news creates a new situation and calls for new decisions. Good news creates a new situation and calls for new decisions. Roman emperors regularly used a word for all of this, for good news to describe what had already been achieved and what life would now look like as a result. That word is gospel. Roman ambassadors and Roman heralds went around proclaiming the good news, the gospel of whatever Caesar or battle had happened. And the good news transformed people's lives. They were living in the already decisive victory and the not yet life under a new regime. So when these heralds came into your city announcing what had happened, here's what they did not mean. Here's what they didn't mean. Roman herald comes coming in. I don't know, I always imagine him on a horse. By the way, with this in a minute, but Paul, Peter, a number of the New Testament writers, if you're new to the scriptures, people who are writing letters to the early church that are in the Bible, do you know what they call themselves? Her heralds. Look it up. When you get home, just do a little Google search, just like this, because you Google, you Google up here. Herald in the Bible. Fascinating. Fascinating. So, so here's what they didn't mean when a Roman herald or a Roman ambassador came running into a town to announce, guys, Octavian won! They didn't mean 
here is like a new Roman imperial experience that, you know, you might really like to see if it suits you. Like here's a new like idea that we'd love for you to like think about. Here's a new option for the way you might want to live your life under Octavian's great rule and reign. No, they meant, like, whatever emperor it was, because this happened over decades, Tiberius or Claudius or Nero, they they were literally saying, this guy's lord of the world now, get in line. You are now the privileged recipients of this gospel, the privileged recipients of this new news, this good news, and it's going to demand your loyalty and, of course, your taxes and a lot of fear, because that's how Rome did their thing. This is how they brought peace and prosperity to the world. It was through war, through a lot of taxing. So if you haven't already started making some connections, let me help you. (laughs) When the early Christians used this language, they used it in a strikingly similar way. A few passages for you. Acts 5.42. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the... That Jesus is the Messiah. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the of peace through Christ Jesus who is Lord of all. Good news of peace, by the way, was a technical phrase also used by the Caesars. Matthew 9, 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Friends, Easter... Resurrection Sunday is the pinnacle of this gospel story of Christianity. When you boil everything down in the way of Jesus, we find the good news. It's the news that something has happened, and as a result, the world will never be the same again. If you mention the Christian good news, the gospel, most people today imagine that you're often talking about kind of a religious option. You might want to take it up if you're so inclined. Some people will view the gospel or the way of Jesus or some good, solid advice about living that's reflected in lots of different faiths and religions, and there's some, like, good insight there. For some, it's a new kind of spirituality meant to, like, help, like, with your interior world. Here is Jesus focused like on like helping you. If then if that helps you cope with the brokenness of the world, good on you. It's something that was used by you know justice advocates in the past as just sort of a good tool to help rally people against injustice. Maybe it was that. For others, the good news is an invitation to a new way of living, like a Jesus-based morality. And I think lastly, a lot of people view the gospel as a kind of like eternal retirement plan. Like I grew up in an environment where if I raise my hand, I invite Jesus into my blood pumping muscle and somehow I go to heaven when I die. All that's fine. And there's some truth actually in each one of those things. But when Paul told the good news, he didn't mean to say, well, that's interesting. I'll see if it's going to fit me or not. He wasn't simply inviting them to try on a new way of thinking. He was telling them something that had happened. I know it sounds so basic. And we don't have to believe it. But what we can't do is pretend that the Bible and history and everything we have dug up and learned about what was happening there isn't how things were. They were announcing an event 
the good news at its most raw in the Christian tradition and the understanding of God birthed out of the way of Jesus and out of the whole Hebrew story, which we'll get to in a minute, was an event. There's good news that Jesus is king. He was inviting them again and again in letter after letter, Paul saying, you can be part of this new world. God had come to us in Jesus to show us what he's truly like through his life, through his death, and by rising from the dead. The event presented to everybody a new reality. And Jesus called it the kingdom of God. If you believe this good news, it will cause you to adjust your entire lives to come into line with a different narrative. We all live by stories. Whether you're aware of the story you're shaped by or not. How good or bad, how good or bad dad was. Your socioeconomic background, the media that you get like that you you consume, the things that shape you, your understanding about what the good life actually is, what your aim is, right? Some of us in this room are like gunning for retirement. You're 30 years old and everything in your life is built around getting enough money to have a few good years to play golf in Florida. That's a narrative. You laugh, but it's statistically what most people are thinking about. There's different narratives and stories about what it means like just to be a really good person. Where does that come from? Where is that built on? There's these stories that actually were shaped on that we're not even fully aware of. We talk a lot at Sanctuary, which would be reminded of how the entire Western view of justice, of human rights, of loving people, pushes back against the natural evolutionary context and push. And it's all directly shaped by the Christian, the Judeo-Christian worldview. Doesn't mean it's right, it just means that's a story that actually has even shaped our world and culture, whether we want to acknowledge its origins or not. It's fascinating. We're shaped by stories. And this story, if it's true, invites us to come into line with it because it's saying there's something new and different happening in the world. If you're new to all this, church and Easter and all of this, obviously you're gonna be a bit of a skeptic. And, and I, I've been teaching here in this church for 10 years and I'm a, I am a native New Englander. So I understand skepticism, right? If you're a New Englander, how many New Englanders in the room? You're groomed to be a skeptic. For the rest of you, like well done on having probably slightly more hope and optimism than the rest of us. But let me just say this, I can pull out all sorts of books and resources by people who make some compelling cases for, why, for how Jesus, a first century rabbi, literally rose from the dead. But that's not why I believe. I think there really are some good cases. I think last Easter Sunday, last year, I laid out some of those cases. I think they're compelling and interesting. But for me, it's just acknowledgement that there's been a community of people for several thousand of years who've insisted that Jesus changed everything, who insisted that the tomb is empty and that when you trust this story, something will be unleashed and unlocked in your heart. So yeah, I believe it's history, but I think it's bigger and wider and so much more expansive. So for those who think like, I I don't know if I can quite grab onto the idea of someone rising from the dead or turn it into a sort of mystical idea, but stand at a distance from it, my invitation for you today is to try it, to try living into this story. 
Try trusting that all those little glimpses of hope and beauty are not random. They aren't aberrations. They aren't mistakes. And that those moments that most of us have felt, even if they feel long in the past, of deep love, of deep forgiveness, of deep grace, these moments that you've encountered aren't blips in the system. They're actually the whole thing. There's a different story being told in the world. Easter simply asks, honestly, how open are you? How open are you? What's possible? And what happens if you actually began to live like this is true? To live like this is actually true. So what is this good news? I've kind of hinted at it and touched on it. It actually, funny enough, is birthed not out of Roman, taking Roman propaganda, but it actually was birthed out of the Hebrew story out of the Jewish story. This is the context that the scriptures are told from, these Jewish people. It's actually really similar, the language that's used in the Old Testament to the Roman language, which is why um, many people have talked about how fascinating um, this moment in history was. You had the culmination of the entire Jewish story with language like good news and heralds and announcing a king and this Jewish people waiting for this king that would show us what God's like and be crowned king over the world. That language hits in Jesus at the same moment all that was happening in the Roman world was happening. It was this epic historical moment. And lest you think I'm making too big a deal out of it or spinning it in a Christian perspective, our entire calendar system is marked on that moment. Lest you think this is just sort of, sort of far-fetched, like churchy thing. Our entire system of understanding time in the calendar is built around a collision between these moments. In the Hebrew story, the prophet Isaiah announces the good news that one day the God of Israel would come to be the king over all, to confront all the corrupt and violent kingdoms and restore rule over everything. Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Like, turn around and trust this story. Jesus claimed that God was restoring his reign over his people and over the nations. Good news was about a new king in charge that meant a whole new life. Jesus said that the living, that, that said that living in God's kingdom meant following him, putting down the sword, seeking peace through radical forgiveness and generosity, and loving your enemies. His good news required that people had to make a different decision as they're sitting under Roman occupation. This is why Jesus took his gospel then to Jerusalem, which was the center of the, the collision point between the religious leaders and the Romans. And he went to confront the corrupt and violent kingdoms of his day. But he challenged them in a surprising way. He didn't do what everyone thought he was gonna do and be another king that wins over power. Who says, you know, the leaders are the ones that are on the top. They have the most followers. They make the most money. They're at the top of the ladder shaping things. No. He challenged them by saying, like, the power of God's generous love and sacrificial love is what actually changes the world. And as Jesus was being executed by his enemies, as he's literally receiving a crown of thorns and being mocked as a fake king, he displays the new way this new kingdom is actually gonna roll by forgiving in real time the very people who are murdering him. Jesus was the one in charge that day, even though it didn't look like it. 
Jesus was the one giving his life for the sins of others. And then a few days later, he rises from the dead as the true king, vindicating his whole way that he was showing. If there was ever any mystery about what the way of God was like, Jesus puts it to bed. Paul says, this is the fullness of God is in Jesus. This is how you roll. This is how you live. This is what it means to be alive. No greater love is someone that lays down his life for his friends. That's not an MLK quote. That's MLK quoting Jesus. And this is what Jesus embodies. The God of the universe embodies in flesh and blood. Not a mystical cosmic Christ spirit force. A real life, like living being God who shows us in humanity what he is like by dying for us and forgiving right there in the midst of things. He appeared to hundreds of his followers and told them to spread the good news that all authority in heaven and on earth now belong to him. Does this sound familiar to anything we just heard in the Roman story? They did it by writing these accounts that are called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you're new to the scriptures, start there. They tell the story of how Jesus brought God's kingdom, how he lived for others, how he died for their sins, and he was raised from the dead. And all of the thousands of implications for this, how we rest, how we play, how we drink, how we rejoice, how we serve, how we live alive in the midst of a broken world, how we implement and live out the post-D-Day world. Already? Not yet. Jesus' followers also shared the good news by just talking about it. Peter and Paul and Priscilla and Aquila traveled around sharing this announcement. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received, on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved. You're rescued. Grace, just grace. I've come to do this for you. You can come into line with it or not. For I received, for what I received, I pass on to you, which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What are they saying? Well, it might look like the rulers of the world are in charge and can do whatever they want. The good news is that the crucified and risen Jesus, the true, true Lord of the world, the real king of creation was on the throne. And in Jesus' kingdom, things are going to be different. The same way those folks in that little village of Italy are like, man, I can't wait for Octavian's rule and reign. I can't wait for Octavian's rule and reign. Or there were Herod's going, ooh, we got to get in line. We chose poorly. There was this call to a whole new way that was being birthed. And we're told again and again, lest you sit here and go like, that's eh, okay. It's kind of hard to believe. The Bible literally talks about how hard it was to believe. Jesus rises from the dead. And we hear that a bunch of people were like, nah. It's okay. Doubt and disbelief and confusion and the foolishness of this message are literally what the scriptures say it is. The Bible is a horrible propaganda book. Horrible. It really doesn't sell the story. Which might mean it's true. Something happens when people tell the story of Jesus and start living like he's really the king of the world. And so I just end with this. The story... The story was not easy to believe, and yet it spread because it had power. It had power. The writers in the scriptures constantly talk about the power of the gospel. Romans 1 says that the gospel is God's power bringing salvation. 1 Thessalonians, word only, not only in word, 
in, in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and in great assurance. Because stories have power. Any of you been, know your story, you know how much it shaped you. You know stories that inspire you to get up in the morning, to get down in the dirt and in the diapers with your kids, to hit class, because there's a, there's a story that you're living by that inspires you and builds a courageous life. Some of you have really broken stories that you're trying to not live out of anymore. Like dad who kept telling you he doesn't love you and he's not proud of you. You're living out of the brokenness of that story. You're living out of like a really broken parental things and it's really hard for you to trust in forgiveness and trust in grace and trust in second. It's hard. It's hard. We live out of these narratives and these stories. They aren't all bad or all good either. Most of them are a mix. But stories, my point is, have power. Power to change a city and power to change a heart. So when Paul, when Paul, what Paul refers to when he's talking about power is that something happens in you when this story, when this good news is announced because he keeps seeing it again and again. Just like that royal announcement seemed to like, like change villages when they heard that Octavian won. Paul keeps noticing whenever I announce the good news, something happens. It's like, it, it, I, don't, I don't know what the room is like today. It's, um, it's the Julian's brunch post Andrew's great sermon on Easter. Or uh, it's like Dunkin' Donuts at a Red Sox game. I don't know where we're at here. <laughs> I, I, that was a perfect moment to fade up. <laughs> It was like a cold drink on a hot day. I don't know. It refreshed them. He noticed the stories like energizing them and waking them up and enlivening them. They found like welling up inside them this sense of astonishment, feeling loved. It was, it was like something that would happen to someone who, who was like, had been profoundly, I don't know, like deaf from birth and then like wakes up like hearing their husband's voice at the first time. I was reminded of this video the other day. Will you play this? She's getting an implant for the first time. Easter, gospel, these stories, these words for a lot of us. I'm just talking to those that are part of the church. We, we, they, they, they grow too familiar. They grow too familiar. They don't cause us to break out the champagne before and after the prayer meeting, like that quote I read. 
They don't cause us to reconsider what forgiveness and grace look like. They don't cause us to reconsider like our future destiny is with heaven. They don't cause us to consider the fact that according to Easter, one of the implications of the gospel story in Christ rising from the dead is that we don't have to fear death anymore. Death has literally lost its sting. Which by the way is what most therapists say drive us on some base level is our fear of death. We don't have to fear anymore. You think that might change the job that you take? You think that might change how you live your life? Or or, imagine a story that is meant to reinforce again and again, you are loved by the God of the universe, no matter what static you get in your world, no matter what stories were pushed on you about love and grace and forgiveness. Imagine to trust that story. Who are you ultimately? What's the truest thing about who you are? You're loved by the God of the universe. There's a whole new world breaking forth right here in the midst of this one. It's a messy world. There's still battles to fight, but D-Day's been won. Jesus has been crowned king and shown us what, that there will be a heaven. The resurrection was the first fruits of heaven. It was a picture of heaven. The future came rushing back into the moment. We knew just how deep God loved us on the cross. And we knew the radical, most beautiful way to live because it's better to give than to receive, Jesus says. So a life of sacrifice and grace and caring for the poor and hurting around you and asking when it comes to budget season, not how much can I save, but how much can I give. That whole life will produce less anxiety and more joy. And the more you trust it, and the more you trust it, it might begin to feel something like that. Like, what if? I get the privilege, guys, every year of like writing an Easter sermon. So I just get to like fire myself back up. But lest you think like Andrew's the pastor, he's probably constantly thinking about the resurrection and like propelling him to massive joy. No, guys, just like you, like just like the people sitting next to you, whether you feel like you're like right on the edge of walking away or you are on top of the mountain right now when it comes to Jesus, we need to keep retelling the story again and again and again. It's why the number one command in the scriptures is remember, remember, remember. Remember this story. Remember how good it is and come into line with it. Come into line with it. What began to happen as Paul told this story again and again and again was that people began to sense that Jesus was like personally present and real with them. This was the giving of the Holy Spirit. As you begin to trust this story, he's not just someone you're hearing about an event just you're hearing about. But the part of the story was that God is helping you live out this story here and now and with you. They kept saying things like, it's as though God were right beside me. This is the effect of a royal announcement. This is the effect of the, that the good news has on many of us who hear it. <laughs> and so with this sense of Jesus as present and alive, with this sense of things becoming suddenly more clear, we today, on April 9th, 2023, huddled in this old cathedral in the middle of downtown Providence. We're just doing what's been done for the last 2,000 years. Just proclaiming to one another, being heralds and ambassadors to one another. Hey, there's a different story you can live by. It's like a whole new way we can roll together. It's by grace you can experience this. There's nothing you have to do to earn it. You just trust that it's real. And if you begin to trust that it's real and true, you begin to live into it. And it begins to transform you. 
the thing that's most fascinating about the gospel is that as this royal announcement of Jesus being king, what would happen is people began to feel loved. An announcement like the kingship of Jesus began to produce in people communities that were marked, it says, by faith and hope and love. And so Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. We invite you to come. We're gonna take a moment and just, just sit in the quiet. And I just want you to consider this line. Good news creates a new situation and calls for new decisions. Good news, good news creates a new situation and it calls for new decisions, new moments, big and small. Can we just sit with this? God so loved you. They came to show you what he was like, to forgive, to redeem, and to show us the end of the story.